All right, with Bible in hand, if you'll turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we'll continue our study through the apocalypse of Jesus Christ or the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's what the word apocalypse means. It kind of sounds like an intense word, doesn't it? But the revelation, and of course, keep in mind that the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus more clearly to us. It literally means an unveiling. And as we go through this book, we understand that he's on the throne and that God's promise is going to come to pass, that his kingdom is going to come as Jesus will come back. We're going to come back with him. We will see that in chapter 19. So I'm kind of giving you a little preview. And then the millennium reign, we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First, there is that seven-year period called the tribulation period that we find ourselves right in the middle of that we'll be looking at here in just a couple minutes. But before we get into um, our study here tonight, just a couple quick announcements. One is we are going to finish the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation. We're going to study the book of Romans on Sunday. We've been in Romans for about 10 months. What an incredible study. Have you been blessed by that study? It is such a powerful book. And uh, as Paul writes the theme, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. And uh, so we've been traveling through that book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're going to finish up this Sunday as we finish chapter 16, we went through that section where he greets some 26 people there in Rome. He has nine people that are around him in Corinth that is going to go with him to Jerusalem, this delegation to take uh, a gift there. But he greets them and he really shows tenderness and how he cares for the church. And those who were in Rome, even though he had never been there, he knew them. And, and it was such an incredible study as we went over those names. Listen, those names are not not in chapter 16, just the waste space. But we learn from it, we, we gain from it, and we are blessed by that study as we went through it. So now, as we're going to finish chapter 16 and come to the conclusion of the book of Romans, that we will see that he's going to give one last exhortation, which is extremely important, which we're going to pick up on when we get to August. We're going to do a study in First and Second Timothy, the pastoral epistles, and that also includes the book of Titus. But Paul's writing to Timothy at a time that it was very, very difficult. In the opening of that letter, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God in Jesus Christ our hope. And it's the only time that he says, I'm an apostle by the commandment of God. You see, in the other epistles, he would say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He would also, like for the church at Corinth, he would uh, express and, and give his apostolic authority that I am an apostle by the will of God. But it's interesting, as he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he says, by the commandment of God and Jesus Christ, our hope. And it's like he's saying, this is a divine edict that is coming from God that I'm writing to you. So Timothy, you have this document because he is writing that letter after he is released from his first imprisonment in Rome. He stood before Caesar Nero. He would give his testimony of Christ before Nero. It's not told to us in the Bible, but you know that Paul did, right? Because he always gave his testimony. He gave his testimony there at the end of the book of Acts to two governors in Caesarea. 
Caesarea to Agrippa in the amphitheater, and remember uh, Agrippa II, that he said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, oh, that I wish that you would. He sent to Rome. He writes the prison epistles as he is under house arrest for two years. And he writes the book of Ephesians and Colossians and, and uh, the book of Philippians and, and Philemon. And then he would stand before Nero. And as he stood there, it would be recorded as he would give a testimony, I'm sure, to Caesar Nero at that time. Uh, Rome took very serious any accusers that would not show up. And I'm sure the accusers did not show up with Paul. He is acquitted. But it would be recorded there in that courtroom, in, in the palace of, of Caesar. After that, what is interesting, that's about 62, 63 AD, Caesar Nero goes crazy. And he burns the city of Rome down, and he blames the Christians. And he says to Timothy, as he writes to them, as he's in Macedonia, he says, Timothy, that as I came to Macedonia, I urge you to stay here in Ephesus. And you need to charge those of no other doctrine. And he talks about the order of the church and, and the role of leadership. He talks about the sound doctrine that he is to hold fast to, that you are to deal with those who are coming in that are legalists and all involved in genealogies and fables and Gnostics. Timothy, you got a difficult task that is before you, and it wouldn't just be for Timothy and Ephesus, but those other churches that we read about in Proconsular Asia that were established there, those those churches that we learned about here in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Timothy, this is what you're to be about. This is what the church is to be about. It doesn't matter about culture. And it doesn't matter about Rome. And if you think that Rome's going to get nice, that they're going to come after you. And they're going to continue to come after the Christians. But this is what you are to be about. And I think that these pastoral epistles are very critical for us in the church today to be studying. Because we see in the church today that the church is being pulled and is being influenced by culture and what's popular and what's trendy. So it's going to be a very important study that I think that we are going to find to be most beneficial and a blessing and as we are exhorted in God's word what the churches will be about and what our manner of life is to be about in the days in which we are living in. So I'm looking forward to that study, and I know it will tremendously bless you. But we're going to finish Romans Sunday. So anyway, that was a long introduction to um, <laughs> what we're going to be studying. I hope you come out. I hope you come out with Bible in hand, continuing to go through the scriptures, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Just one last quick announcement. For those of you going to Israel with us as we're going in October, I want you to remember that final payment is due, uh, I think, August 23rd. So uh, I sent an email out to everyone. We have about 42 people signed up for Israel. We're full. We're looking forward to that trip later in October um, as we're going to do a study tour of uh, the land of Israel uh, as uh, we're going to go to those places that we read about in the scripture. So be praying for us. We're looking forward to that. And uh, But get final payment. And if you're like me, it's like, I know there's something I need to do here. I can't quite remember. So just want to throw that out, and I'll try to get an email out to everyone. But looking forward to those things. All right? Father, we do ask that you just bless this time in a study of the word of God. And Lord, I thank you that people are willing to come out on a Wednesday night and study this book because there is a special blessing attached to those 
who read the words here, who hear the words and then keep these words. And we know just as John was told that these things must shortly come to pass, not that they might come to pass, they are going to come to pass. So, Lord, as we read this, and these are heavy things that are taking place here uh, in chapter 11, as we find ourselves uh, in the middle of a period of time, it's the most documented period of time in the Bible, and that is the tribulation period. It begins what is called the Great Tribulation. And, Lord, it's not written to us to scare us, but to prepare us, to understand that these things will come to pass, culminating into the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, we have a wonderful future, but also it gives us urgency that we need to be about your business and occupy till you come. And, Lord, that we want to be able to share truth to others that we love. So just bless this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last time, we only looked at the first two verses of chapter 11. Lord willing, tonight we're going to pick up the pace and finish the chapter but I want to remind you once again that chronologically we are, are looking at the halfway point of the tribulation period. Um, we are also halfway through the book of Revelation here, chapter 11. But keep in mind that Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year period, and again, putting it into the outline of the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, which is extremely critical for us to understand the end time scenario, because it's going to fit into that outline. As we know, there's still a one week, a seven year period that God is going to be dealing with your people, Daniel, and your holy city, which is Jerusalem. So chapters 6 through 19 give us detail at that seven-year period called the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week. And usually it is divided up into two sections. We read uh, that oftentimes, just as we're going to see tonight, 42 months. We read about 1,260 days. We read about three and a half years. We read about time times and a half times. That's three and a half years. So the second half of, of that that tribulation period, or that which is called Daniel's 70th week, is called the Great Tribulation Period. And that's what we're beginning to see here as in chapter 11, the halfway midway point, there's a number of things that are taking place that particularly we're going to be talking about in chapters 11 and 12 and 13. What we're going to see who takes center stage of the, is this one who is called the Antichrist. He is going to come. He's a world leader, as we talked about. He's the rider on the white horse of Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, the first seal that is opened up, and he comes conquering unto conquer. That is, he has a bow, but on an arrow. He comes on the scene as a world leader. Daniel talks quite extensively about him, that he's going to seem like he's a genius to the world, uh, a great orator. Uh, he's going to seem to have the answers to the world problems. He comes on as a political leader. He's going to have the world come and back him, as we're going to see in the chapters ahead. He's going to be an economic leader, as we're going to see in chapter 13. He is also going to be a religious leader. We will see that in chapter 17. And so here is the Antichrist 
coming on the scene, and he's going to be mentioned here in this chapter, but really the focus we will see about what he's about in chapters 12 and 13. And also, we haven't even talked about this, but he's going to have a, a sidekick, someone who's going to come along and support him, who's called the false prophet, and we will talk about that in Revelation chapter 13. But you recall, as we open up chapter 11, let me read the first two verses to you again, that John, then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, he writes, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot, for 42 months, or that's three and a half years. So we did talk quite extensively about the history of the first and second temple, the research that is being done today, uh, trying to locate exactly where those temples stood up there on the Temple Mount, and, and they are preparing to build a temple. Now, we know there's not a temple in Jerusalem today. There hasn't been since 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem, and they came in and destroyed the second temple. Not one stone was left upon another, even as Jesus said would happen. And so they were dispersed at that time to all the nations. And we also know that they would be out of the land for 2,000 years until 1948 a miracle happens. All of a sudden, Israel becomes a nation once again. They come back into their original homeland. So as we have seen the events taking place, since they have been a nation, we know that there is a group trying to get ready for a temple. They got all the priestly uh, garments ready to go, the, the furnishings ready to go. They got young men that they're training for uh, sacrifices and offering. So the time will come, it seems, as though the Antichrist, what is going to happen is, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that he will confirm a covenant with many, or that is with the Jews, for one week, and that will allow them to rebuild that temple. So it will stand in the tribulation period, and it will be, as we will talk about later, defiled by the Antichrist because he's going to go into that temple, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he will set himself up as God to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. So he is going to go in and he's going to desecrate the temple. Jesus says, when you see that, which is called the abomination of desolation, then get out. Because there's going to be great tribulations such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And we will see what the Antichrist will do at that time. His true colors come out. And, and so that's what we are looking at at this halfway point. So John is told to measure that temple. And, and we know what is interesting here. We didn't get to it last time. Uh, but I want to point this out. And then we're going to move on. But he says, don't measure the outer court. It's been given to the Gentiles. We talked a little bit about that. What is, exactly is that? Is that talking about the Dome of the Rock? Is that talking about the Antichrist? We know he's going to set up his headquarters, according to Daniel chapter 11, in Jerusalem. So it could be that, that he has his headquarters there. We don't know for sure, but John, don't measure that. It's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. Uh, I want to make reference to Luke's gospel, to the Olivet Discourse. Luke, when he gives the account of the Olivet Discourse, 
he gives the unique account how Jesus talks about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and I'll read it to you. But he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all the nations. And listen, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen, that the armies, that is the Roman armies, are going to surround Jerusalem, which they did, Titus and the Roman legions, and they're going to come in. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. And they would take away 100,000 into captivity slaves uh, back to Rome. And then they were dispersed throughout all the nations for 2,000 years. But he says that Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Bible scholars have looked at this and said, okay, what is the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled? Was it in 1948 when they became a nation? Probably not. Was it in 1967 when they took over East Jerusalem, the IDF and the Six-Day War, and they took over the, the Eastern Jerusalem where the Temple Mount was? Was it then? Some have suggested perhaps. But here's another reference that it says that they will tread the holy city, Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. So could it be that, <clears throat> that it's a reference to that Jerusalem's going to be, you know, tread uh, under by the Gentiles until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you can read that and take a look at that, but I think it's interesting to tie the two things together, what Jesus said. But let's continue on as we do read in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And so these two witnesses, we see that they're wearing sackcloth. Kind of reminds us it's Old Testament reference. Definitely not the best dressed guys. And they have a very powerful ministry. And you don't want to make fun of these guys. You don't want to make fun of how they dress because fire proceeds out of their mouths to devour their enemies. They cause drought, turn water into blood. They strike the earth with the plagues as they desire. Now, there are those who will come along and they will say that the first three and a half years of the tribulation period is kind of utopia and there's, there's no tribulation going on. Well, that's not true. If you take the book of Revelation chronologically from chapter 6 on to this point, we know that half of the earth, almost half the earth, has been killed by the sealed judgments and the trump judgments. But 
also we know that here we're going to see that these two prophets in verse 10 tormented those who dwell on the earth. That is a term for the non-believers. So that doesn't sound like a picnic to me. So here are these guys, they are in Jerusalem, they minister with this power that's described to us for 1260 days, or that's again three and a half years, and they are in Jerusalem wearing sackcloth, and they are the two witnesses. Now, are they preaching? Are they sharing? There are scholars that say they're probably pronouncing judgment is what they are doing. Now, first, verse 4 tells us concerning these two witnesses that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's a reference, as many of you know, to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In chapter 4 of Zechariah, he has this vision, uh, the prophet does. And, and many of you have read that incredible book of Zechariah. And in that vision that he has is a seven-branch menorah, the menorah that was in the holy place, the seven-branch menorah uh, that uh, would have bowls on top and wicks that were floating in there. And the priest would come and light that seven-branch menorah there in the tabernacle. It was the only source of light in the tabernacle. And then in Solomon's temple, they had ten menorahs. But here was this seven-branch menorah uh, made of solid gold, uh, with a bowl on top of it, with seven pipes going to those golden bowls. And the seven-branch menorah, as you read the chapter or lampstand, on the left of the bowls and on the right of the bowls was two olive trees. And there was these golden pipes that went from the, the two olive trees, um, and they would connect uh, to those bowls. So Zacharias, he's looking at it, would see a continual flow of oil that would come from the olive trees into this, this golden bowl through the seven pipes down to the seven-branch menorah. And usually, you know, reading that, the, the priests, one of their duties is they had to fill up those bowls full of oils continually. But here in the vision that he sees in Zechariah chapter 4, there's a continual flow. And we learn so much from that chapter. It's such an incredible chapter because, first of all, we know that oil in the Old Testament is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of anointing. And the message was given to Zerubbabel who had laid the, the foundation of the second temple. They go into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, for 70 years. The first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar um, and his armies. And then as Babylon would fall to the Medes and Persians, you know your history, that it was Cyrus that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord that would make a decree that Zerubbabel, he was the civil leader, Joshua, he was the religious leader, the high priest. You can go back to Jerusalem, and they would take about just under 50,000 people with them, and they would rebuild the temple, the second temple. But something happened. They laid the foundation of the temple, and then the work stopped. It actually stopped for about 12 years. And I'm sure that Zerubbabel, who had brought these people back to Jerusalem, and Joshua the high priest, all of a sudden the work of God stopped. And I'm sure that they were very discouraged. They thought that perhaps they were failures. And Lord, the, the work has stopped. So this word came to them. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. 
and the hands of Zerubbabel to lay the foundation of this temple. His hands are also going to finish it. Make sure, Zechariah, that you tell Zerubbabel that. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And he says to him, you tell Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things. You know, I'm very grateful that in the book of Philippians, um, one time, I, I read it a thousand times, but I remember one time I read it at a time that I was discouraged. And I remember reading that, as Paul writes, being confident, I'm absolutely sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And that caused me to just rest in my heart that I can just, you know, know and have confidence that the Lord's going to finish the work that he's begun in me. And you see, Zechariah, that's what you're to tell Zerubbabel, that the hands that began to lay the foundations of this temple are going to be the hands that finish it, and don't despise the day of small things. And you might be here tonight, and you might be discouraged in your walk with the Lord or perhaps in your service to the Lord. But I want to say this, don't despise the day of small things. Because the rubble was told, just as the word of the Lord comes to you tonight, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That the work that he's going to do in you and through you isn't going to be because of your togetherness, isn't because of your resources and your might and your power and, and your plans. It's going to be by the Spirit of God. So it's going to be finished. And, and all of a sudden here, Zerubbabel, the hands that laid the foundation, will finish it. it. It's a message for us. And we know that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. We are his poem. What word comes from that? Poem. You are God's poem. And you might think, especially you guys, oh, so what? I'm a poem. A poem is, is heartfelt. You are his workmanship. You are his creation. You are his poem. An expression of his love and power, what he wants to work through you, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can I encourage you tonight? Listen, God's not done with you. And if you feel like that you're in small days, don't despise it. Allow him to do what he is doing in your life. Be patient. Look to him. And know that he will be faithful to bring that which he wants to do in your life to completion. And know this is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so as here in Zechariah chapter 4, all of a sudden, as the vision continues, that Zechariah was asked by the angel, do you know what these two olive trees are? And Zechariah said, no. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And now we see them here in our text in, in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. So who are these two witnesses? Who are these guys wearing sackcloth? Devouring people with fire. Reference in Zechariah chapter 4. And now we see him here in Revelation chapter 11. Well, one of them, just about every Bible commentator says that one of them is Elijah. 
How do we know that? Well, the text hints at that. They have power to shut up the heavens so it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Fire proceeds from him. Who's that remind you of? That's the ministry of Elijah. Uh, Elijah, the fiery prophet. There in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, first of all, when Ahab, that terrible king of Israel, was ruling, uh, Elijah goes to him and declares that there's going to be drought. And, and there's going to be drought, you know, until his word is given. And we know that it did not rain in Israel for three and a half years. So Elijah was able to, to cause it not to rain, just as it says here. He was also able to call down fire from heaven to devour his enemies. Because when you move into 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, Ahaziah, he's the king, and he tells one of his captains and 50 men, I want Elijah here. Bring him to me. So Elijah's up on this hill, and, and here comes this captain and 50 soldiers, and the captain says, Elijah, the king says, get down here. And Elijah said, if I be a prophet of God, my, may fire come and consume you. And all of a sudden, whoosh, came and consumed those guys. So the king, in his you know, wisdom, sends another captain and 50 guys, and they come to Elijah. He's up on a hill. And they said, the king says, get down here, Elijah. He wants to see you. And Elijah says, if I be a prophet of God, may fire come down and consume you and your 50 men. Whoosh. All of a sudden, they are consumed. The king, he's not going to give up. So he sends a third team, a captain and 50 men. This time, the captain says, Elijah, please don't harm us. You, you know, you burnt up these guys. Please, you know, I was sent to do this. You know, this is my job. And so Elijah went with him. And then he told the king, you're a dead man. So Elijah was used in a powerful, powerful way. We know that Elijah was raptured into heaven in a fiery chariot, never died. In the last of the Old Testament, we are told that, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So this is long after Elijah is taken up in a fiery chariot, but God declares through Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, that Elijah is going to come at the end of that book. And by the way, Malachi, um, the, the last words of the Old Testament is a curse. Isn't that interesting? Because the Old Testament, the law, it will bring a curse. Why? We can't keep it. That's what we've been studying in Romans, right? The law won't save you. What the law does is that it points out that you're guilty. The law, as Galatians says, is a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ. So the last phrase of, of the Old Testament is a curse. The last phrase that we're going to see here in the New Testament when we finish the book of Revelation is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Interesting. You know, one of the things that we will see on Sunday is Paul ends the book of Romans by commending them to the grace of God, to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I noticed something that in every epistle that Paul wrote, he always commended the Christians to the grace of God. And we see that the Bible, you know, commends us to the grace of God as it ends with, you know, the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Interesting. The last word of the law is curse. The last word of the New Testament is grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So 
we are told that Elijah must come. Now, in Matthew chapter 17, at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples asked about Elijah coming. But Jesus said, Elijah has already come. And in that discussion, they knew that, that he was speaking of John the Baptist. You remember the, the forerunner of Christ out there in the, the wilderness baptizing and, and wearing camel skin and eating grasshoppers. And, and they asked John the Baptist, when you read the gospel narratives, the religious leader said, are you the Christ? He said, no. Are you Elijah? He said, no. I'm the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. As he was preparing the way of Messiah. So what exactly did Jesus mean when he says that Elijah has already come? He was saying that John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. But he's not Elijah personally. So Elijah is going to appear according to Malachi before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So one of these witnesses is probably Elijah. The second one, there's a debate. Some say it's Enoch. Because Enoch, in the book of Genesis, he too was raptured there. Enoch walked with God and then was taken up. So there are those who say that it's appointed once for man to die. And so the two witnesses, Enoch and Elijah, didn't die. I don't know if I'd buy into that, that reasoning because there's going to be a whole generation of Christians that are not going to die and are going to be raptured, taken up in the heaven as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 tell us very clearly. I hope we are that generation, that the Lord comes and we are caught up, harpazo in the Greek. Uh, we are snatched up is what it means. The Latin word raptures, where we get the English word raptured, to meet the Lord in the air. That's a promise. It's called the blessed hope. So, it could be Enoch, Elijah. I don't think so, but I'm as wrong as anybody else. Some say that it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. I personally believe that it is Moses. Because who do we see on the Mount of Transfiguration that I made reference to? We see Elijah and who? Moses. And I think that they were kind of having a staff meeting there. And, and Moses representing the law and Elijah the prophets. And they were talking about Jesus' exit, his departure. And it was Moses that was able to call down plagues and turn water to blood. That was Moses' ministry. And then in Jude, uh, that little epistle before the book of Revelation, in verse 9 it reads, that yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a, right, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So I read that and I think, what was that all about? Satan and Michael, the archangel, disputing over the body of of Moses, it tells us uh, that in the Old Testament that God buried Moses, not the children of Israel, there on Mount Nebo, somewhere, but God buried Moses. So why were Satan and Michael arguing over the body of Moses? Could it be that Moses' body is needed because he's the second witness? And Satan knows that, and he wants to prevent that. And by the way, I just got to throw this out as, as I think about it. I was thinking about this this afternoon and looking at that uh, Jude passage that, you know, why did Jude bring up that accusation between Michael and Satan? Um, because, you know, here he's talking, don't be speaking harshly dignitaries. And, 
And we know that uh, perhaps uh, maybe that you've seen, I saw this just recently on Christian TV. I need to quit watching Christian TVs. I can get so discouraged by the stuff that's there. I mean, it's not all bad, but there's a guy that, you know, he's getting all excited, getting the people all worked up. And here he is. I'm going to bind you, Satan, and we're going to kick your teeth out, Satan, and we're going to, you know, grab the devil, and we're going to, you know, and stomp on him. And he's going off, and he's parading around. The crowd got worked up into a frenzy. And the Bible says specifically when it comes to dignitaries, you know, you don't address dignitary. You don't speak evil of them, even if they're evil dignitaries. But Michael didn't say, I bind you, Satan. I'm going to kick your teeth out. And I'm going to stomp all over you, Satan. It makes for good theater. But it's not good theology. You see, what Michael did is he put the Lord between him and Satan. The Lord rebuke you is what he said. And by the way, that's a good piece of advice for all of us. You always put the Lord between you and the enemy. Because none of us are any match to mix it up with Satan. And to say, I'm going to stomp on you, Satan. I don't think he's too worried about that. About us stomping on him. But my Lord, my Lord. And these guys on TV that do that seem impressive with the theatrics. But you always put the Lord between you and the enemy. And you're going to be just a whole lot better off. Are you with me on that? When you go into a dark room, what do you do? Do you scream at the darkness? Do you yell at the darkness? Do you rebuke the darkness? No. You turn on the light. You turn on the light and it dispels the darkness. And you look to the Lord. And you submit to God and you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, let's continue on in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bombless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So Elijah and Moses and whoever these two witnesses are, are killed most likely by Satan himself, but not until their ministry has been completed. 1,260 days, not 1,259 days. God is in control. Their ministry comes to an end. And when they finish their testimony, they are killed. In verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So this is Jerusalem. So why is Jerusalem, which is called the holy city in verse 2, now referred to as Sodom in Egypt? Because it's vile like Sodom. It's vain like Egypt. Jerusalem, the only city that God said is my city. But as we know that it's the only city that Jesus wept over, now it's likened here in chapter 11 to Egypt and Sodom. And I think that perhaps indicating to us that during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, that Jerusalem's leadership is lining up with the Antichrist, making a covenant with the Antichrist for a week, uh, as, as now it's, it makes a reference to Sodom and Egypt, but continuing on then from these, uh, for those from the peoples, tribes, and tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So, you know, before there was cable news network and Facebook Live and all this, people would look at this and think, how is this going to happen? Well, we know it can happen very easily today. 
that there, there's live feeds from every major city around the world and all over the world. And all of a sudden, it's going to be seen by the world that these two, their bodies laying in the streets. And so uh, here uh, they are laying in the street. We see here, as we read our text here, what is interesting to me is, and those who dwell on the earth, keep in mind that that is, when you see that term, it's talking about non-believers. They rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. They have a big party. It's the only time that you see rejoicing in a tribulation period. It's the only time. Sending gifts. See these dead bodies there. They said that, you know, we don't want to hear these two witnesses. They tormented us. They shut the heavens. They, they, they had fire proceed out of their mouths. They, they were ones that turned water into blood. They rejoice when the prophets are killed. Jesus would say, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice when you are being put down. Be exceedingly glad. And so here these two prophets are killed. If you've been beaten down because you're a Christian, and you've been made fun of. And you know that there are those at work that gather that watch you and talking about you and the whisperings. Because they know that you're a Christian and you've been a witness. Will you rejoice? I know it's not easy and it's difficult. And I think that we as Christians, that we need to understand this, that the world's going to become more hostile towards us. We're seeing it, aren't we? And the world's going to hate us because it first hated Jesus. So these guys are left in the streets, their bodies for three days. The world's rejoicing, but the story continues as we read in verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah, really, because all of a sudden, the eyes of the world are watching this, you know, this, this live from Fox News, CNN, whatever these two witnesses have resurrected, come back to life. And, and the enemies of the two witnesses are horrified. They're astonished. They're shocked. They're full of fear. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here's an earthquake. You know, it brings death. 7,000 are killed. There's, you know, it's a major earthquake area, Jerusalem. We know that when Jesus, that when he died on the cross, there was a great earthquake. Um, there uh, will be, there's three earthquakes that are here in the book of Revelation. We've already seen one in chapter 6. Here's the second one. But 7,000 uh, end up dying. And, and then there are those who end up giving glory to the God of heaven. You know, as we go through these, these plagues, as we go through these seal judgments and these trump judgments and the bull judgments, it's not too late for men to repent. And we read this and we think, this is hard, this is difficult. 
And it's like the Lord, like when we talked about in those, those trumpet judgment and the host of demons come out and they're tormenting men for five months and we think, how can that happen? And, and yet it says at the end of the chapter they refuse to repent, to give their lives to the Lord. It's like the Lord is saying, turn to me, turn to me, because if you think this is bad, eternity is worse. The torment of eternity so this is an opportunity for people to turn to the Lord, to give glory to God. And then the seventh angel sounded, verse 15, and there was a loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and shall reign forever and ever. You remember that the seventh seal brought uh, forth a profound silence in heaven. Here the seventh trumpet initiates this loud voice in heaven. Um, and it, what... You know, and here is what is being said is the certainty about Jesus coming and ruling and reigning. And he shall reign forever and ever. And then in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. So they're giving thanks and rejoicing that the kingdoms of the world will be ruled and reigned over by Christ when he comes back. We will see that in chapter 20. And it says that it is a certainty. It is a certainty. And listen, we have a blessed hope, and that is a certainty. When we read that word hope in the scriptures, it's not, oh, I hope. We go to heaven because of our faith in Jesus Christ. It means we are going to go to heaven. It's a certain, you know, it's a certainty. It's going to happen. God's word has been declared. But I also want to remind you of this. That when you read his promises and his word given to you, that it is true for you. And we can rejoice in that. Because, Lord, your word is true for me. And I can give thanks for what your word says and your promises given to me, and I can rest in your love. And we can give thanks now for our salvation and knowing that he will complete that work in our lives and the promises that he gives us to us and that God is in control, even in the midst of any tribulation that we go through. And we can give thanks. Because, Lord, you will not forsake me. You promise you will always be with me. And you will always be faithful to your word. So the nations were angry, verse 18, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should re reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the world is angry with God. The world is getting more angry, isn't it? I don't understand. Why would anybody be angry at God? He sent his son to die for us. Rejoice in that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But there are those who are angry with God. Have you ever talked to somebody who's just angry at God? Because they want to live the way that they want to live. And they don't want anybody telling them that they need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. 
And the world is getting more angry with God. The world hates God. And as I said, the world's going to hate you because of it. Know that the world's not going to applaud you when you come to Christ. So Jesus is saying that to us and warning us, but we will be blessed and he will be true to us. And we're still to give the testimony of Jesus Christ to others, but those who serve God will be rewarded. We're going to rule and reign with him. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail as we finish the chapter. Now, remember that when Moses built the tabernacle out there in the wilderness, it tells us, God called Moses to build the tabernacle. He initiated, Moses responded in the people. Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle that I may dwell with my people. And you make it according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern and all its furnishings. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 reiterates that. Moses didn't sit down and say, oh, I think it'd be great, you know, if we just make it of animal skins and we make two rooms and here are the furnishings, that would be cool. No, he was shown the pattern of the tabernacle. And there is a tabernacle in heaven, a temple in heaven. The earthly tabernacle was a shadow, a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And in Hebrews chapter 8, and as you go into chapter 9, talking about the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about Jesus with his own blood. He entered the holy of holies there in heaven once and for all to present for our eternal redemption. That, that term, once and for all, because... The earthly tabernacle couldn't do that. The, the sacrifices of bulls and goats couldn't do that. It was an unfinished work. Jesus finished the work. He cried out, it is finished. Because he ministers in a superior priesthood and a superior sanctuary. He is the superior sacrifice. So there's that temple. And of course, in the earthly tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had the cherubim. And it represented the throne room of God. And there was the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest went in once a year behind the veil on the day of atonement to sprinkle the blood to make atonement for the nations. But here the Ark of the Covenant is heaven. It scrolls. And all of a sudden, this is being described to us in, in chapter 11. The temple of God opened in heaven. The Ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. By the way, as we end real quick, a lot of talk about the Ark of the Covenant. It was interesting that some of you remember this. The last time we went to Israel, we went through the Temple Institute, and they were talking about the furnishings and showing us and all ready to go. And they made a statement at the end of, we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. So my ears went up when I heard that. It's like, really? So I went over to one of them and I said, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Although reveal it in, in time. It's like, really? You know where the Ark of the Covenant is? That's just a rumor. There's all kinds of theories about the Ark of the Covenant, where it's at. Some say that it's, that it was, it's hidden somewhere in the hills of Judea, that Jeremiah took it and hid it. Some say it's under the Temple Mount. That's what they're claiming it is. They know where it is, and they'll pull it out when they, they need it. Some say that it's in Ethiopia in a church. Perhaps you've read that. All kinds of speculation. But here's the thing. When we continue on, will the Ark of the Covenant be in the Holy of Holies, in the Tribulation Temple? I don't think it will. Because the Antichrist is going to do what? Set up an image of himself. 
So whether or not it's, you know, they got a replica one or Jeremiah, I think in a reference to Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 6 says that will no longer the Ark of the Covenant be remembered or come to mind, whatever that means. But we do know that in the Holy of Holies, that in this tribulation temple that is spoken of, that the Antichrist, and we'll talk about it next week, is going to set up an image of himself. What does that mean? Come back. We'll talk about it next week. So, Father, <laughs> we do, as we read this, this is incredible, but this is written for us because I thank you that we can know what our future is. That, Lord, there is tribulation for those who dwell on the earth, but we have a blessed hope. And that is you're going to come and take the church out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And that's a promise given to us. So, Lord, Jesus said it comes when we're least expected. We don't know the day or the hour. But we're to be watching and waiting. And we have the testimony of Jesus Christ right now to give to others. And as we go through this book of Revelation, it reminds us that everything is culminating. It's going somewhere. It's headed somewhere. And that is that Jesus Christ is going to come and establish his kingdom. And we know that your word is true, even as it's been declared tonight. And that it's a certainty. And no matter how the tribulation comes to us in this lifetime, and it does come, and I don't want to make light of Perhaps what you're going through tonight. But I want you to be encouraged that the Lord loves you and he will never leave you or forsake you. His promises are true for you. And he desires to bring the strength and the comfort that you need. He desires to bring you the courage that you need. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this place with joy in our hearts but also with a, a sense of urgency. That, Lord, that we don't want to be weighed down with the cares of life and everything else to where we're not being a testimony to others. Because we have the greatest news, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and a living hope that comes through his resurrection. And I do want to pray, why we just got a minute, that if you're here tonight and you're not right with God, maybe you've gone to church, maybe you've tried to be a good person, maybe you're here and you're thinking, God can never forgive me. He died for all of your sins. And being a good person, you're not good enough. None of us are. And a church can't save you and a pastor can't save you. Only Jesus Christ. Only the cross. And he calls you to turn to him to repent and give yourself to Jesus and call out to him. He loves you. This world is going to end in a very terrible, terrible way. But Jesus has life to give to you and forgiveness and right relationship with the Father. Will you come? Will you call to him and surrender your life to him as your personal Lord and Savior? And sincerely in your heart, you can pray, Jesus, I come. I believe you died on that cross for me, a sinner. Forgive me. And I believe that you're alive, speaking to my heart. 
And I ask that you would be the Lord of my life. You are the Savior of the world. I believe that. And I thank you for bringing me here. And I thank you for your promise of eternal life and forgiveness. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I don't want to be of the world. I know I'm in this world, but I don't want to be of the world because the world's not my hope. You are. I thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody prayed that prayer, even if you're listening on the radio later or live stream tonight or podcast, whatever, will you give us a call if you're not here? But for you who are here, we got a prayer team that's going to come up in just a minute. Tell them the decision that you made. And for all of us, leaving here rejoicing that we have not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption, that we can cry out, Abba, Papa, Father. Bless everyone here now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.